0: One of the most interesting operations conducted by Australians in World War I wasn't even an operation. It was a series of individual, spontaneous efforts between April and June 1918 which managed to steal about three miles of the Western Front from the Germans, pretty much from under their noses and with next to no retaliation. It was bold, it was enterprising, it was cocky, even a little bit arrogant. For some reason, the men of the first AIF got it into their heads that they were so good, all they had to do was pick an outpost, go across and capture it. You may well ask, surely they weren't actually that good, but their results during Operation Peaceful Penetration tend to suggest that, yes, maybe they were. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone and welcome back. First up, a shout out to Jackie Coit or Chris Howie, who contacted me via our Facebook page, Jackie slash Chris, likes to listen to these episodes while driving long into the night as a stock agent. Now I would have thought that listening to my dulcet tones would be right up there with drinking and speeding as things you don't want to do in a car, for fear of falling asleep while driving, but apparently it helps pass the time and keeps them entertained. So thanks again for the contact and the episode suggestions. Which brings me to another point. While researching these episodes, I quite often come across people or incidents which occur within the wider scope of the episode that I'm writing at the time. And although interesting and fully deserving of a mention, they don't really have enough detail to fill an entire 20-40 to minute episode. Maybe it's an event which may have been of vital importance, but only lasted a few minutes. Or some soldier has done something amazing, but their records are quite sparse and there's very little information on the person themselves. For a while now, I've been wondering what to do with these stories. They should be told. So I'm thinking that in addition to the main episodes, when I come across something along those lines, or a topic is suggested, such as Chris has done, I'm going to put them out as a short five-minute bonus episode. They'll just be randomly thrown in as they pop up, and I'll post them on weeks where a full episode isn't being published. The first one of those will be one of Chris's suggestions, but you'll just have to wait to find out what that is. So when you notice a five-minute episode in the future, never fear, I'm not getting lazy, it'll just be an interesting topic that I've stumbled upon. And so now, on to today's episode, which actually falls into neither category. Too long for a bonus episode, but only really enough information for a short main episode. Such are the trials and tribulations of a humble podcaster people. By April 1918, the men of the first AIF had been at war for three years. They'd been through their baptism at Gallipoli, suffered the horrors of Frommel, Poziers, Bullcourt and Passchendaele, while building a reputation as some of the finest fighters on the Allied side. Their hard-fought successes had given them valuable experience and confidence in their own ability as soldiers. When the Germans launched Operation Michael in March 1918, the British 5th Army was smashed. The majority of the Australians were on leave when the hammer blow fell. But an efficient administrative system and Monash's genius for understanding where men needed to be helped the troops gather from wherever they happened to be. They were expertly deployed, and their stubborn defence played a large part in stabilising the front, halting the German advance at villers bretonneux Their confidence and belief grew even further. The nature of the tactics for Operation Michael meant that, once halted, there wasn't a continuous front line. The stormtrooper tactics Ludendorff designed consisted of sending his toughest and most experienced troops forward to hit the British front to identify weak spots. Once these were identified, he would send his reserve divisions into the breaches and thus force the British lines to fall back or risk capture and annihilation from the German units behind them. And it worked, at least initially. But as innovative as the tactic was for the time, he eventually met with the same issue which had stumped every other general on the Western Front. The initial success was unable to be properly exploited because no matter how fast the four troops were able to advance, if the supply chain couldn't keep up, the attack would stall. So when the Germans met the Australians at Villers-Bretonneux, they had just about reached the limits of their ability. Not that that detracts from the efforts of the Australians. If they hadn't got there when they did, and defended as staunchly as they did, the Germans would have reached Amiens and largely resolved their supply problems. Regardless, they were stopped, and the German tactic of punching through at numerous points had meant that along the new front line there were salients and pockets jutting forward and defensive positions were set up on ground which probably wasn't the best for defence. These new positions were held by 2nd grade German troops. As I said previously, their best troops were the Storm Troops and it would be a waste of their abilities and fanaticism to make them sit in defensive positions. The 2nd grade troops were maybe a bit old or young or had never really shone through with their military skills or they were wounded soldiers returning to the front. Their posts were often up to 2 kilometers in front of the main defensive line. They were stuck out there on their own with little mutual support from other posts and feeling quite vulnerable. Operation Michael petered out and the Germans launched Operation Georgette on another part of the front. Meanwhile, in front of Amiens and Villers-Bretonneux, both sides stopped to catch their breath and lick their wounds. But it wasn't really in the Australian character by this stage of the war to sit idle and so patrols were sent out to determine the enemy position and strength and maybe snaffle a prisoner or two. They found that with the Germans scattered as they were, with a bit of thought and stealth they could pretty much sneak up and take a post with no resistance. It seemed a little bit too good to be true. Previously, in order to gather intelligence about who was occupying the opposing trench, a trench raid was conducted. The troops hated them. They would have to leave their trench and pick their way through the barbed wire, hoping not to be seen or caught in a random burst of machine gun fire. Then, upon sneaking up to the trench, upon a signal, they'd drop in and all hell would break loose. Fighting with clubs, knives, handguns, and whatever close quarter weapons they could dream up they tried to grab documents unit identification and prisoners even the best executed raids would leave the raiders bloodied and bruised and probably one or two dead the first indication that this may no longer be the case occurred on the 5th of April in front of Hamel sector the 58th battalion had moved into position the day before and various forward posts were occupied one post was filled by corporal D A Sayers and three men of B company At about 2pm, Sayers saw a party of 30 Germans advancing on his position and ordered his men to open fire. The enemy party immediately took cover behind a bank of dirt. Sayers and one of his men went forward and worked their way around to the rear of the Germans, while the other two remained in the post and kept up the fire. The Germans, despite outnumbering the Australians by 10 to 1, began to waver, and while a German officer was admonishing them, Sayers and the other man rushed the Germans from behind. In the words of the unit diary quote the enemy party turned tail and fled precipitately leaving six dead including the officer and two badly wounded at least six others more or less severely wounded were able to flee with their light-footed comrades end quote so basically the upshot was 30 germans were put to flight by four australians leaving behind six dead and two seriously wounded it was an interesting development and hinted that maybe the fighting will of the Germans was not as strong as it had once been. Word soon got around the other battalions, who figured out that they'd have a crack as well. Sayers' attack was a spontaneous action, but within weeks the other battalions were planning their raids and using much more stealth. They achieved success after success with minimal actual fighting. Some began to see it as a competition. The companies of the 41st Battalion kept a record of the numbers of prisoners each company had taken. Like keeping score at a cricket match. Sometimes it was individuals who undertook to do things on their own initiative. An account of one such event follows. Before going into the line in front of Merris on 9th of July, Captain Carn of the 6th Battalion pulled aside Bluey Farrell and said, I'm going to send you to an NCO school when we come out of the line. Bluey dropped his bundle and said, Cripes, don't do that, Captain. Captain Carn humorously replied, well, Farrell, if you bring me in a little Fritz for identification purposes, I won't send you. That night, Captain Carn was sitting in his dugout when, to his surprise, there arrived five Fritzes and Bluey with a Fritz machine gun on his shoulder. He grinned, saluted, and just said, No school. As I said previously, the main ingredient which led to this peaceful penetration, as the official historian Charles Bean called it, was the general cocky nature of the troops. They felt they could do it, and so they did. On the flip side, the Germans probably never conceived that anyone would try, that so they didn't have a contingency plan. One of my favourite actions from this time exemplifies this paradigm. It was something which no one would have thought an enemy would attempt, but attempt it at the Australians did, and were successful. It involved a German tank named Mephisto. The tank was involved in the advance of Operation Michael. However, outside of Villers-Bretonneux, It drove into a shell hole from which its crew could not extract it. They abandoned it, and there it stayed while the battle ground on. Then, during the peaceful penetration raids, men of the 28th Battalion, operating in Monument Wood, saw Mephisto sitting there, alone and unloved. They came under machine gun fire, and so had to retire, leaving the tank behind. The 28th was relieved by the 26th on the 13th of April, and managed to secure Monument Wood. But the tank was still sitting there, invitingly close, yet still protected by German machine guns. Lieutenant Colonel Robinson decided the tank needed to be taken as a trophy, and so a party was sent forward to gauge the possibility of recovery. It was deemed possible, but dangerous due to the proximity of the enemy. Unperturbed, the 26th Battalion pushed their line further forward. It was decided that on the 22nd of July they'd recover the prize. On the two nights preceding the raid, working parties cleared a path that they would use for the recovery. On the night of the 22nd, two vehicles from the 1st Gun Carrier Company joined 13 men of the 26th Battalion at Monument Wood. Aircraft flew overhead to conceal the noise and some artillery was thrown towards the Germans to convince them to keep their heads down. The recovery crew went forward and attached two steel cables to the tank and with a bit of digging and persuasion they dragged Mephisto to the rear. There was no military or strategic reason to seize the tank. It didn't threaten anything, it wasn't operational and at best it could only provide cover for a handful of Germans if they intended to come forward. The only reason to take her was because they knew they could. For anyone who lives in Brisbane or is thinking of visiting you can see Mephisto in the Queensland Museum. It's been cleaned up and preserved however it is largely in the same condition as it was when it was dragged from the field in 1918. You can still see the damage from a shell strike and the gouges in the skin from bullets which have hit it. The side hatch is open so you can see inside, and get an idea of the conditions in which the German tankers operated. I've attached some photos on the website, which I took during one of my visits to the museum, so go and check out the website. And obviously, if you're ever in Brisbane, pop into the museum and come face-to-face with this part of history. It really is fascinating. By mid-July, it was becoming all too easy. Gunner J.R. Armitage noted, quote, Stories were coming in of German dawn patrols going out to relieve their night outposts and finding them deserted. There seems to have been quite a bit of this mysterious and demoralising thing happening and it appeared that blackened Australian infantry parties would sneak out, surprise these outposts and at the point of cold steel bring them back without firing a shot. But, as my dear old dad is sometimes fond of saying self-praise is no recommendation. Australians mentioning how good Australians are should always be treated with a grain of salt, unless it is backed up by independent sources. And the best independent source is the enemy, the poor buggers on the receiving end. If they can take a moment to express their admiration, then it's a pretty fair bet that the local accounts are fairly accurate. A German regimental historian, writing about the events of those few months, mentioned the 1st Australian Division. He said, Justice demands recognition of the fact that the enemy here was an unusually daring and enterprising soldiery, which often pressed our front line heavily and grabbed many posts from us. End quote. Even without such acknowledgement, the numbers speak for themselves. By 8th of July, the front line had been advanced by almost three miles. German prisoners numbered around a 1,000, and included their weapons and equipment, and one tank. All this was achieved without a major battle. To put it into perspective, in 1916 at the Battle of the Somme, Over the course of five months, British forces managed to advance, on average, six miles. This cost them half a million casualties. Now obviously, peaceful penetration occurred over a smaller frontage, and the war situation had changed significantly in that time. But a spontaneous series of small raids advanced the line half the distance of a full-scale battle, for a mere fraction of the cost in lives and material. Brigadier Pat Beale, DSOMC, summed up the importance of peaceful penetration better than I ever could in his book, Legends of War, the AIF in France, 1918. So I'll close out this episode with a quote from that book. This new phase of peaceful penetration would last for three months, only a tenth of the time the AIF was in France, but it left a lasting legacy. Its long-term impact on Australian army doctrine was established. Its continuing emphasis on patrolling to dominate the battlefield can be traced back through World War II to peaceful penetration. The need to own the two-way range with a target shoot back, or the ground beyond the wire, was embedded in the psyche of the Australian infantry from 1918. It accounts for its successes and sometimes its survival from Tobruk and Tarakan to Tarrantkout. End quote. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast, or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast.